1: and welcome to Origin Story. In each episode, we take a word, idea or figure from history, explain its origins and talk about how it influences political discourse today. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. I'm Ian Dunton. I'm the author of How Westminster Works and I'm a columnist for The Eye. I'm quite intrigued as
0: to whether you can do the intro for this podcast without looking at the script. Do you think you know it off by heart now?
1: Yeah, I probably do. I and I do. yet I also think I would mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the author of what now? Um, I might claim that I was the author of books I haven't written. I'm Dorian Linsky, author of Ulysses and Rhythm (laughs) March. So this is part two of our epic on John Maynard Keynes. Uh, In part one, we did a lot on his life, his personality, his successes and failures, uh, leading up to pretty much the, the Great Depression. So we're going to pick up in the 1930s with Keynes's magnus opus, the general theory of employment, interest, and money. Now, Skidelsky calls Keynes the greatest persuader in 20th century economics for the way that he fused urgency, authority, moral conviction, and common sense. And when he wanted to, he could write like an angel. However, the general theory only has 3.8 on Goodreads. (laughs) (laughs) So... In what kind of a book is the general theory? He
0: basically gets rid of all of those kind of journalistic flourishes and kind of catty asides. He mostly gets rid of the colour. Right. The, the, the lines that everyone knows from the general theory are just like the one little bits of colour that are allowed in because his purpose here now, you know, you've been dealing with years upon years of just like permanent unemployment. Just unemployment that will not go away, yeah. of just human material suffering, not just in Britain, but around the world, you know, in the US, um, in, in the European mainland, that is just bludgeoning people's lives. So it's at this point, it's just like, I, I I have to convince people of my position. What's interesting about him, I think, by the way, is that he quite clearly reaches the political position before he has the economic theory. Oh, yeah. You know, And that, that tells you a lot, I think, about him because he's often presented, including by Skadalski, I think, as this – he's fundamentally an economist who's just got this different theory about how the economy operates and off we go. Um, but I don't think he's that emotionally or morally removed. I think he is – full of moral outrage at wasted lives, you know, wasted on the dole, just money. Not, It's not even doing any good for the economy and it's just destroying people's lives. At the starvation in Germany when he was at Versailles, I think
1: he has a fundamentally moral personality. Well, well I felt because he was coming to some of these conclusions in the years leading up to the publication in 1936. And, and I wondered whether, you know, that he felt that he needed to present the general theory in order to get, the hearing that he really had been unable to get so far. You mm-hmm. know, in order to achieve these these goals, he needed to have this big book and go, this is the one that explains it in terms of theory, because economic theories, you know, they do have this kind of aura of of science, of fact. Yes. I mean they're not, yes. yeah. but that's the aura they have. And I wonder whether he was like, Well, I can't I can't change the things that I want to change unless I have a book like this.
0: I think that's right. I think also, look, he's coming under sustained attack by people in the Treasury, you know, what was called then and it's still called now the Treasury View, which is essentially a sort of a a broadly laissez-faire position, which is saying, you know, if you want to start pumping money into the economy for, for employment, well, that money's going to come out of savings or there's going to be capital flight. You know, people are just going to take that money overseas. You know, they'll have all sorts of problems here. It's not going to work out. There are other economists like Sir Hubert Henson, very influential, former ally of his, that are again in that same sort of position, just being like, no, hang on a minute, right. you know, th- this is a really dangerous thing to do. Your proposals mean that we start borrowing. If, if people want to get a grasp of, of pretty much where that debate is, it's really not that different to the kind of arguments that George Osborne would have been making, mm. you know, in the lead up to the coalition government, say 2009, it's like, you're borrowing too much money. Unless you stop this, you know, we're going to have a catastrophic impact on the economy, people will lose confidence in the currency, and, and off we go. So he's facing that and he keeps on trying to formulate theories for why something is happening. Why is the economy stuck in a rut? You know, mm. why would why would this make an impact? So partly it's a response to those economists, but he has always got an eye on the policy machine. You know, always you know, they are they are products designed to be picked off the shelf by politicians and decision makers to be implemented in the economy. That is always the way yeah. that he's thinking. Um, he starts to amass some proper allies around him at this point. The sort of this Cambridge inner circle. One of them, importantly, is Richard Kahn, um, a student of his, very meticulous, sort of absolute maths prodigy. becomes absolutely essential to something that's called the multiplier, which becomes crucial to Keynesianism, and is crucial to Keynesianism even today. And another one was Piero Sraffa, who was actually a friend of Gramsci um, in oh. Italy. He was a communist in Italy. Very, very sensitive. Can't really teach because he gets too nervous. He has to write books. He spends years just writing sort of 80 pages. Passionately devoted to his mother. You know, exactly the kind of person that Keynes is like, I must protect you mm-hmm. from the world. You know, <laughs> he falls exactly into that type. Uh, but these these guys are the ones that are, are almost the part authors of what happens. You know, they're the ones that it's worked out with. It, it is to a certain
1: extent written by committee in Cambridge. because well, th- yeah, that that really fascinated me—the fact that the is credited with the multiplier, which mm. is is really important idea. Yeah,
0: and, and the mo- well, as we'll see, the multiplier is is not just an economic idea, but I think is is a really profoundly beautiful philosophical idea as well. He also, by the way, in, in a very similar move to Herzl, when we were in the Zionism episode, mm. has a pretty good idea of how important this is. He's not, again, he's not modest. So he says, I believe myself to be writing a book on economic theory which will largely revolutionise, not, I suppose, at once, but in the course of the next 10 years, the way the world thinks about economic problems. And that is exactly what it does.
1: And then he goes, I can't expect you, and he's writing to George Bernard Shaw, obviously, of course, um, or <laughs> anyone else to believe this at the present stage. And what struck <laughs> me is, is one... Again, uh, not so humble. Two, he sort of actually underplayed it, as, as we will see. He is not, I suppose, at once. And I think you could make an argument that it pretty much was.
0: Yeah, that's once. right, you know. That's absolutely right. It was instantaneous. And we should introduce, there the idea that there are already experiments that are taking place in this area. I mean, Sweden and Japan have been following policies of intervention in order to sort of stimulate demand. And, of course, we have the New Deal on the Roosevelt, which starts before
1: the book comes out. Because it's seen as Keynesian, right? In, 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 in retrospect. A lot of time in kind of like, you know, history. If you're studying it at school, for example, yeah, the idea is that the New Deal is Keynesian from day one. That's and right. it's not. No, and he and he does go
0: over there. Um, he sort of he goes over to New York. He meets with Roosevelt. Um, Walter Lippmann sort of does lots of those, um, arranges the meetings. He, he tells Keynes afterwards that was really influential. By the way, on some of the decisions around bonds, it's not strictly clear, and there's quite a lot of debate about just how influential Keynes was on, on those that early part of the New Deal. So let's just talk about what the theory is, and we can do it pretty simply. We're not going to get too bogged down in the economics. The classic theory, the orthodox classical economics, basically says that the market will run perfectly as long as it's left alone. It will have periods where of difficulty, mm. unemployment for instance, and then those will eventually improve as long as you just leave it be. Why? Because of supply and demand. Because, you know, someone comes along with something, people want to buy it, it experiences mm. uh, scarcity more people come on to sell it, the price goes down, that by that exchange of demand and supply, you show a price point which reflects the scarcity in the world and the desire that's mm. in the world. And th- that is a basically a very pure thing. You just want to leave it well enough alone. Integral in that idea, right, is this, this idea almost that the component parts of something reflect its overall character Right? So this is classic Adam Smith, the invisible hand. By my individual selfish actions, I create the good social outcome. Mm. And the same for the household. Again, this is in Adam Smith, almost in a kind of offhand way, but like, well, the nation's got to balance its budget because, you know, households balance their budgets. They save when they're supposed to. They shouldn't get into debt. And what's true for a household is also true for the state. So you have that constant thing of from the individual outwards mm. to, to the whole of the economy, to the whole of the country. Keynes has a very different idea of the economy. He says that it experiences prolonged periods of unemployment due to a failure of aggregate demand. Now, it's not really clear. What, the thing is, like, why would the demand not be there? And there's, and there's a whole sort of economic debate around that that we don't really need to get into. It's about, are the wages is really sticky. Would they go down more easily if there was a trade union or otherwise? But at the heart of it is really this, this conception of uncertainty, that people don't really know what's going to happen in the future. And there's this weird, among all the sort of like quite hardline economics, there's this quite strange psychological idea of the animal spirits. It's just there's a point where the economy just gets stuck in a rut and there's just no animal spirits Mm. that are kind of lifting it out, that are improving people's attitudes towards it. Where does that get you? That the economy on its own will not fix itself. That the laissez-faire is wrong. So to quote him, we are brought to my heresy I bring in the state, I abandon laissez-faire. In a speech to the National Liberal Club in 1923, he was already outlining these ideas. It is obvious that an individualistic society left to itself does not work well or even tolerably. The more troublous the times,
1: the worse does a laissez-faire system work. Would it be fair to say, because I was struck by the kind of time elapsed between him abandoning yeah, laissez-faire yeah. and this book, would it be fair to say that he realises what doesn't work, but it takes him a while to develop his solutions. He said he's always looking for solutions. But when he's abandoning laissez-faire in like 209, 20, he doesn't have it yet? Or- well, it's also
0: his, his diagnosis of the rut is not clear. The, the, that whole thing where people get stuck in this debate about the stickiness of, of wages and blah, blah, blah. It the funny thing is, in the future of Keynesianism, it kind of doesn't actually really matter. All that matters is unemployment can become endemic and we can do something about it. And here's the thing that we can do about it. You know, ultimately, as long as there is a crisis of demand, of aggregate demand, this should work. So it's sort of lost in a slightly academic way. Whereas when it comes to the yeah. solutions, he is coming up with them way before he's really got a general theory to work it out with. He Again, I think that with Keynes, the politics comes first. And the politics is based on a moral outrage, at unemployment and starvation and hardship. So how do you get the economy out of a rut? You stimulate it. And how do you stimulate it? there's a variety of ways. So you can use interest rates, right? That's called monetary policy. It's basically like, you know, the lower the interest rates are, the easier it is to borrow, the less you have to pay back. It's called cheap money. You'll spend more and there'll be more demand. Or you can have tax cuts. This is very interesting, by the way, because that is quite Liz Trussy, And this brings us onto the sort yeah. of complexity of what Keynesianism is later on. You can have tax cuts to stimulate demand. In fact, that's one of the primary Keynesian mechanisms that's been used for decades. Or... And this is the crux of it. You can have public works. You see that the state comes in and goes, you know what? We've got to employ people. Shall we build roads? Shall we build houses? Shall we build cinemas? Shall we decarbonize the energy grid, (laughs) for instance? And that this will actually encourage the private sector. It's not that the state should be running this stuff indefinitely, it's that by taking on the job, You can then create more jobs. So let's say someone's going along to build a road. They're going to need to buy a sandwich on the way. And so there's a guy that sets up a sandwich stall, and he starts getting money. And by doing that, he starts spending the money that he gets. There's a stimulation of demand. And finally, that demand problem that you had starts to go away. So the classic... Example that he always uses, well, there's always used in describing Keynes, which is kind of like him at his most extreme and slightly infantile, but nevertheless, mm. is if the treasury were to field, fill old bottles with banknotes, bury them at suitable depths in disused coal mines, which are then filled up to the surface with town rubbish, and leave it to private enterprise on well-tried principles of laissez-faire to dig the notes up again, then need be no more unemployment. In other words... It kind of doesn't really matter what you do with these. The thing is to do them and to give people work because then they will spend money and more
1: work will come from it. He does add obviously it would be better to build houses. Yes, exactly. But this would be better (laughs) than nothing. Well, we're at
0: it. We might as well build some houses. Yeah. uh the, the point that this becomes more specific and scientific is with Kahn's multiplier effect, which he puts, first of all, in the Economic Journal in 1931. There's, there's also some Swedish academic contributions here, um, which is really trying to calculate how much extra money will be secured for the spending that you do on the project. And the calculation for that is essentially to try and work out how much people are going to save. If a pound is spent in the community, what's to stop that pound circulating endlessly? Because a little fraction of it is ultimately mm. saved. What's very useful about the multiplier politically is this. Your multiplier for a given project might be, let's say, one, which means that you'll get one pound back in the private sector for every pound that you're spending in the public sector. Lots of the time, it's something like two. So it's basically, you so, say, well, we're going to spend 100 billion. That sounds like a lot, but actually what we're going to get back or what we're going to stimulate in the private sector is 200 billion. So it makes the political argument much stronger. But I then think that there's something really profound about the multiplier and then about this whole theory, which is the reversal of what you see with laissez-faire. Laissez-faire is from the individual to society. What's good for the individual, good for society. It's good for a household, good for the country. With Keynes, it's the other way around. The household analogy for him doesn't work at all. He's like, well, if we all start saving, no one's spending, there's no demand, we're all going to starve. So actually, it's not a very sensible idea for you to come up with this fallacy that the component parts of something reflect the whole. And the multiplier shows the same thing. It's not just that the individual looking out for themselves does good things for society. It's also that by doing something for society, we can do good things for the individual. That That is a two-way relationship. Until this point, liberalism can be quite a cold fish in a way. You know, it's these sort of atomized individuals floating around. What happens when you start introducing the multiplier, you start introducing Keynesianism, is actually you get a vision of us together in a society working in each other's benefit.
1: What I was really struck by was that insistence, which you see throughout his work, on uncertainty, on the things that you can't predict. Mm. And then for his opposition to these supposedly watertight systems, he says of classical economics, it may well be that classical theory represents the way in which we should like our economy to behave, (laughs) but to assume that it actually does so is to assume our difficulties away. And he also, therefore, doesn't like Marxism writes in 1925, how can I accept a doctrine which sets up as its Bible above and beyond criticism an obsolete economic textbook which I know to be not only scientifically erroneous but without interest or application for the modern world. <laughs> and this has a, he's a, this has a human cost. When he goes to the Soviet Union, If uh, he goes a couple of times, um, he goes, it is impossible to remember until one gets in the country how mad they are and that they care about their experiment more than about making things worse. <laughs> There's a consistent sort of opposition to people that go, we have found the system. We have found the magic trick. We can see the future. We can fix all problems that will ever come, which, of course, is really interesting when we look at what happens to Keynesianism and and some of his followers, sort of ignore the uncertainty bit and just think we found the trick. Mm -hmm. But I found that enormously um, appealing, that there is, in fact, we say that he has said many times, he was not a humble man, <laughs> but there is a humility about the unpredictability of life and of history. And This is a man who in 1937 was pretty convinced the Second World War would not happen. Yes, yes. His so, political predictions are very often very wrong. And he lost wrong. loads yeah. of money betting on uh, election results, mm-hmm. which he was almost mm-hmm. always wrong about. Yes. And so Clever he, people often are. <laughs> yeah. He did have humility where it counted sort of baked into his philosophy. It's like, this is not a definitive solution for everything. This is not a perfect system.
0: It's funny because even now, you see, remember in the first episode I said, look, there is the the economist with the economic solution to an economic problem, very strict. And then there is a sort of political philosophy of the death of laissez-faire. You can see it even in what I'm just describing. Like technically he is talking about a very specific circumstance, but actually the language around, not in the actual general theory itself, but in the support of it beforehand and to a certain extent afterwards is much broader. It's the end of laissez-faire. I'm coming here to bury laissez-faire in these circumstances. Yeah. Right. What happens afterwards? Well, well, fine. Once you've got the economy running back up normal, then laissez-faire takes over again and off we go. Although that isn't really the way the reaction to him goes. The book comes out on the 4th of February, uh, 1936. Um, Paul Samuelson, an economist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, described it this way. It is a badly written book. Poorly organized. It is arrogant, bad tempered, polemical, and not overly generous in its acknowledgments. Flashes of insight and intuition intersperse tedious algebra. An awkward definition suddenly gives way to an unforgettable cadenza. When it is finally mastered, we find its analysis to be obvious and at the same time new. In short, it is a work of genius. And it, it hits. I mean, the
1: discipline like a fucking asteroid. Basically. I felt like, and I know this is probably quite trite mm. comparison, but I almost felt like I was reading about something like Beatlemania. Like, just in a really tedious way. It just sweeps. <laughs> Young people, Samuelson again, um, said the general theory caught most economists under the age of 35 with the unexpected virulence of a disease first attacking and decimating an isolated tribe of South Sea Islanders. <laughs> Economists beyond 50 turned out to be quite immune to the ailment. It should be said that he was a, he, he was a Keynesian, so he's not, he's not having a go at it. But it was astonishing how almost overnight it seemed all the young economists were like, this is the new thing. And it's actually quite heartbreaking. I feel a little bit sorry for the Austrian economists because Joseph Schumpeter, <laughs> his students at Harvard basically defect to Keynes. Mm-hmm. Uh, In Cambridge, it's the same. Even at the LSE, Hayek's followers and some of his closest allies turn Keynesian. There's an image in one of the biographies of almost like people flocking out of his lectures while he's talking Mm, mm. because they've gone, oh, we're Keynesians now. It's quite remarkable. And then that gets folded into the New Deal Mm. only after Roosevelt fucks up by doing the non-Keynesian thing. And it's another example. It's maybe one of the last examples of someone not listening to Keynes <laughs> and proving him right. Because Roosevelt didn't really understand. No, he didn't. The economics. He yeah. just after his first meeting, he went. I saw your friend Keynes. He left a whole rigmarole of figures. Just didn't really get it. Um, and he thought in 1937 that the Great Depression was over. So he decided to cut spending and raise taxes, which triggers the so-called Roosevelt Recession. Uh, and it's another told you so moment for Keynes he's like Mm. why the fuck would you do that (laughs) Um, so now the the sort of next wave of the new deal is explicitly Keynesian this is what uh, FDR says on the radio the very soundness of our democratic institutions depends on the determination of our government to give employment to idle men now that is Mm. pure Keynes right pure Keynes pure Keynes (laughs) I'd just like to thank Patreon supporters. Thanks to Keynesianism, every pound that you donate to Origin Story through the multiplier effect boosts the British economy. This episode, a special thank you to Anthony Knox, Daniel Block, Neil Casey, Gavin Bluck, and Paul Thornton. Thank you so much for your support. And if you would like to join them, then you can look at the Patreon link in the show notes.
0: There's a sort of split between the old and the young, exactly as you described, and, and sort of older economists that really committed to the orthodoxy, and that's where Keynes spends most of his time, mm. is basically having arguments with those guys, increasingly vitriolic, brutal arguments, I mean, to, to the point where actually some of his colleagues, Dennis Robertson in Cambridge, basically comes close to having a psychological breakdown and, and goes to take a chairmanship in London. I think economists at the time were shocked at the level of vitriol and passion that was injected into that, into what was previously quite a staid, you know, yeah. like area. The young just kind of get on with it. I mean, uh, uh, John Galbraith, who was a leading Kenzie for years afterwards, said, The old economics was still taught by day, but in the evening, almost everyone discussed Keynes. And they start turning it very quickly into a policy machine. Mm. All of that debate, the sticky wages, or is it the animals, just, just, none of it doesn't matter. All we need to know is unemployment can be chronic, the market won't serve for itself, we have the tools here. Right. So off we go. So we're just going to get on with that now. The transmission agent really comes in the form of Alvin Hansen. He's this respected economics professor of 50 years in the US in Harvard. And his seminars become the kind of focal point for the study and dissemination of Keynes. But then from there, those young Harvard academics go into Roosevelt's White House. And suddenly, very, very quickly, it's absolutely at the top of world politics and is being turned into a policy
1: engine. And we should mention here Hayek, who you know thought i think perhaps that he was getting the upper hand in this in this very sort of acclaimed <laughs> takedown of the the treaties before <laughs> before Keynes said oh i don't agree with that anymore and what i liked here because hayek can seem like a, a a cold fish but we think of them as sworn enemies in terms of theory and obviously their followers are but they did agree on some things they like agreed on the gold standard for example yeah. and they respected each other hayek described Keynes as having the most fertile mind among living economists and the review when they wrote about each other there was loads of praise then they'd stick the knife in yes. but the praise was important and the worst thing that Keynes said about Hayek one of his essays was from the wildest farrago of nonsense that he'd like ever read mm. but he didn't put that in print that no, was literally just some scribbling margins, right? yeah. and so there was this idea that even when uh, Hayek publishes The Road to Serfdom in 1944 you know his sort of grand masterwork and the you know, that sort of set text of neoliberalism. You know, Keynes kind of takes enormous exception to uh, a lot of the ideas in there, particularly the idea of the um, slippery slope that all state intervention will lead to tyranny.
0: An idea that you and I have now slipped down
1: ourselves on numerous occasions because it just keeps on coming up. Right. Yeah. And of course, Hayek has been proved wrong by the existence of social democracy. So... <laughs> He was he was right there, but he still said, like in his letter to Kayak, going, I think it's a grand book. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm really glad that you wrote it. And I found the, the humanising of, of those two individuals very, very powerful because it's quite easy to see Keynesianism and neoliberalism like clashing and followers of both being really kind of, you know, furious with one another and, you know, economic debates now can get really heated. But the two of them both respected the other one's intellect. they like, okay, maybe you come to the wrong conclusions, but I'm really interested in your thinking. And they always found something useful in the other guy's book. Yeah.
0: I think, I, I, I think that Hayek is much nicer to Keynes than Keynes is to Hayek. <laughs>
1: yeah, like, that's probably true. <laughs> I think it was, you know, Hayek
0: was growing up with hyperinflation, right, after the war. That's, that was a core memory for him. Yeah. And what he would have remembered was was, Keynes, was ultimately Keynes' writing after Versailles, just sort of being like, well, look, here's someone who seems to actually care about us. You know, that actually, you know, it's not just like we're fallen enemies that you can do whatever you want to with. For all of the fact that they did get on, and it is quite a touching relationship, Keynes makes sure that Hayek can stay with him in Cambridge you know, during the war, that there is a story of them in the Second World War Ooh. where they're both on the roof together. They're sort of tasked with casting off these incendiaries if they happen to land on the roof, and they're just sort of both other, and again sort of like, you know if the world made any sense at all we would be treated to big budget Hollywood dramas that are based on that night with Keynes and Hayek on the roof Get Christopher Nolan on the case. Yeah, no shit, he might actually be able to put it off. (laughs) However like the followers of Keynes are not Quite so, so there's this famous story of what happens when Hayek uh, comes to Cambridge to give his talk. His talks have been going down fairly well at LSE. It's a whole different sort of assessment of slumps and blah, blah, blah. And he basically gives it to a bunch of Keynes' K- K- disciples. <laughs> and at the end of it, he gets done. There's a, there's a blackboard just full of all these triangles. with so this insanely complex Austrian theory. Uh, and Kahn asks him, there's complete silence after the speech finishes. There's no clapping. And Khan just goes, is it your view that if I went out tomorrow and bought a new overcoat, that would increase unemployment. (laughs) Hayek just points at the blackboard and says, yes, but it would take a very long mathematical argument to explain why. (laughs) This is just considered this moment of like, these guys just cannot even explain themselves to us, let alone to the poor Hayek
1: also, his English wasn't very good. Exactly. And he was up against somebody incredibly eloquent when he's speaking in this kind of like broken, heavily accented English. And like you say, no one had read the Austrian school works upon which his economics was based at that time. I also want to mention now the second uh, really famous Keynes quote, or third, if we count animal spirits here. Now, it it, it seems very apocryphal, both the comment and what he was responding to, because Aww. he was he was given a peerage in 1942, right? Bear in mind, so in this quote, he's referred to as Lord Keynes. Mm. So I'm a little confused as to this, but there was a joke attributed to Churchill. If you put two economists in a room, you get two opinions, unless one of them is Lord Keynes, in which case you get three. <laughs> because he was uh, often accused of changing his mind, and Keynes allegedly responded, although there is no actual evidence of this, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Mm. But he definitely did think that, and he definitely did say, I am a highly teachable person. I learned from criticism and before now have laid myself open to the reproof that my second thoughts are often better than my first thoughts, which is an indication, something, of a dangerous instability of character. (laughs) And I think if he Very wasn't good. like that, he wouldn't get <laughs> to the general theory. And I think probably, I mean, I could be projecting here, but I imagine it seemed that that earned quite a lot of respect from people, that rather than seeing them, as that, that uh, a Churchill joke suggests, as just like blowing in the wind, somebody that was actually responding to historical events mm-hmm. and his uh, proof of his own errors, so that when you get to the general theory... He has really worked on that and it has been forged by experience and criticism and debate. And even then, he's he's just going, well, this is not going to fix everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and where I find, obviously, Hayek, apart from the fact I don't agree with his economics and politics, but harder is that Hayek is very much just like, well, this is how shit is. Well, it's in a stricter way.
0: It's the letter that Keynes sends to Hayek when he reads um, Road Serfdom, Is he's basically like, you do accept that the line has to be drawn somewhere, yeah. but you don't give us any indication of where that's going to be. And because for Hayek, I mean, you know, you would have regulation of weights and measures, right? You know, you are going to have laws around the incorporation of a company. It's mm-hmm. not like there is no state involvement in the economy at all. So you, once you start the slippery slope thing, you're, you're in a really vulnerable position intellectually because you accept that something has to be there, but you're unable to, to say anything because everything is a slippery slope. So really, there was a real profound weakness there in that whole side of politics that you can still see now all the time. I mean, you know, if you, if you listen to something from, you know, some Tufton Street sort of think tank right, against state intervention, you know, well, what was your opinion on COVID? You know, well, we not going to intervene there? You know, what, what's your idea there to, to actually have an absolutist tradition on this is not very helpful when you're trying to figure out policy proposals or when you're trying to have a
1: consistent position
0: on political economy.
1: Now, one way in which this is uh, perhaps the inverse of the Churchill episode is that nearly the Second World War is not that interesting. Okay, no. like he did important work there. He was brought in to work out how to pay for it. Government-wise, um, he's at the height of yeah. his powers, right? It's just not that intellectually. Go back and, and goes back and forth with the Americans, but it's not really that. Interesting. The, the, the most fun, the most fun thing that I found was that when he uh, he was like uh, watching this parliamentary debate where people were deciding whether to pursue one of his policy suggestions, and he was being attacked quite a lot. And he said it was a loonies' picnic or an idiots' day out where lunatic members, <laughs> who on other occasions would be doomed to a decent restraint, have a chance for once of catching the speaker's eye. <laughs> <laughs> and yet again, it's just like, why are all these stupid people? Yes attacking my clever idea.
0: After the war, there are talks between the UK and the US on sort of the, the basically the, the rules-based international order, where both sides want to essentially create a situation where you can maintain stable trade and currencies under a free trade system. Keynes has much more radical ideas, he's far more convincing, but we're just at a point where what the Americans say is what is going to happen. And yeah. that is what happens. And that turns into the Bretton Woods. I mean, he had a lot of participation <laughs> in that, but he was not going to be in a position to win the day, even though he was probably more eloquent and compelling at the time. Uh, his final mission really is just trying to sort of renegotiate these loans with the Americans, which again is kind of a humiliating experience for Britain, which is much more used to giving loans than it is to pleading. <laughs> for, you but know, it's
1: weird in. because in some ways, OK, yeah, he sort of fails at Britain, Britain Woods, his version. However, he participates in setting up the World Bank, the IMF, GATT, yes. which becomes the World Trade Organization. Yes, yes um, it's not a bad failure. <laughs> you know, he's, he's also, you know, involved to varying degrees in setting up the NHS and the post-war welfare state. He's the Treasury defender of the sort of beverage
0: report of the yeah. welfare state and the NHS, trying to make sure it can happen. He's a, and he's a big supporter from the Treasury, which is where you're going to need support for that, and where you're least likely to find it.
1: And he's helping to set up the Arts Council and revamping the Royal Opera House. Fuck, I didn't know that. Yeah. Huh. So it's all of the all of the parts of you know his, all of his interests are in play. Now, unfortunately, starting in the in the 1930s, he'd had various heart problems. He died very suddenly on 21st of April 1946 of heart failure at the age of 62. Uh, he claimed his only serious regret was not having drunk enough champagne. <laughs> <laughs> and even like his intellectual enemies thought that he was a phenomenon. Hayek wrote to Lydia, his widow, to call Keynes the one really great man I ever knew. And Lionel Robbins called him one of the most remarkable men that have ever lived. Yeah. And that sort of, we'll pick this up. That still makes me quite emotional. I, fi- I right. find the Hayek letter, like,
0: extremely affecting.
1: Mm. Uh, uh, but that's not unique to people who personally knew him. We will pick this up, that, mm. that, that actually Keynes' stature was so great that even people that really hated Keynesianism kind of didn't want to blame it on Keynes. Yeah, yeah. There's a yeah. l- sort of love and admiration.
0: Well, it was just one of the greatest sort of Brits really you know if you were to have this list and, and it was a sensible list you know of the 100 grand you, 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 under any rational assessment he would be in the top 10 you know with Robbie connection. Williams with Robbie Williams <laughs> 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 exactly maybe maybe drawn uh, Lydia lives by the way Lydia lives for 36 years after he dies she's just 53 Um, so actually she, she's around for a really mm. long time afterwards and during the course of those years Keynesianism just sort of sweeps the
1: developed world. Yeah, like he's he sort of canonized. It did remind me a little bit, I'm sorry to bring this up again, but it reminded me a little bit of the way that sort of as soon as George Orwell died, mm. this process of canonization took place. And it sort of seemed to happen with Keynes. And at the same time, you know, Hayek and like are ostracized. It is, it is a revolution. And I think that his sort of apostles, if, if you want, are Paul Samuelson, who we mentioned earlier, yep. publishes a textbook just called Economics, bold, in in 1948, which (laughs) is Keynesian, becomes like a set text, and then Roy Harrod's biography in 1951. And there are various reasons for this incredible boom of post-war prosperity, which we talked about in the, like in the Boomers episode, Mm -hmm. you have this this sort of startling period of kind of growth and and optimism, which really lasts until like the mid-70s. And that's not all down to Keynes' ideas, but he sort of gets credited with them, like he is the patron saint of the boom. And, he's a, and he is a
0: very significant part of it mm. as well. I mean, you know, the, the stuff that is being implemented, there's been an exaggeration in the post 70s period of, 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 as if Keynesians were just sort of in these white lab coats in you know Downing Street in the White House, just basically going, oh, how much dem- how much aggregate demand do we have? Well, here is where we are on the graph, and therefore we have this much inflation. They never thought that they had that much certainty that it was you know that precise. They all knew they were fiddling with the parts of a machine that they couldn't fully control, but. They had some inputs and the inputs gave them fairly good, reliable results until inflation took off in the 70s. So, for instance, you get to someone like Kennedy. I mean, by the time you get to Kennedy, after a speech to Congress, he comes back in and says to his advisor, I gave them straight canes and they loved it. (laughs) (laughs) But again, by the way, what you find often with these examples is. This was tax cut. I mean, for Kennedy, it's tax cut Keynes. Mm. I mean, you know, Galbraith, one of the leading Keynesians, calls it reactionary Keynesianism. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not about the public works. It's about, well, we just cut the taxes and, and off we go.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's interesting that he is associated, you know, widely with deficits and tax and spend. And actually, UK and US budgets were mostly in surplus from like 1948 through to the <laughs> early <over> 70s. <laughs> you know, they, they were not big deficits at all. Now, 1965, there's a famous Time magazine cover, May Keynes Its Man of the Year, Mm. which is always quite impressive if you're dead, with with the line, we are all Keynesians now. So Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon are all Keynesian to some degree. But there's a funny story I, I, I wanted to ask you about, about Keynes dining with sort of his young American worshippers in 1944 Mm. and then telling a friend the next day, I was the only non-Keynesian there. (laughs) So if we think of like the 60s as the high watermark of Keynesianism, like how Keynesian was Keynes in, in that way? Was there a, what would he, if he was still around, would he have felt that perhaps they were, they were too zealous or they were too hubristic? Maybe. I don't
0: think you can read him. And whenever you talk to sort of uh, economists and especially Keynesians, there's never a clean cut answer on that stuff. Which again goes back to those those two versions of him. The stripped down economic one or the political philosopher one. And he really bounced between those two. But he would say, you know, you can easily just take out Lines, For instance, where he would say, at the end of that process, laissez-faire comes back into its own again, or classical economics comes back into its own again. In other words, once you no longer need to stimulate, to create demand, you back the fuck up, right? You just leave it alone, and then it's all laissez-faire, market knows best until we have another problem. However, look at his reaction to the beverage report, right? Like that report comes out, he writes a letter to beverage going, this is really important stuff, what you're doing. This really has to happen, he clearly recognised that although Keynes's economics do not necessarily equate to much broader state intervention in the economy, Once you kill laissez-faire in the heart, once you say it is not true that the market always runs itself best, you're naturally going to start asking questions about it. Well, what are these other areas where the market might know best? Maybe we do need regulation to stop them putting sewage, you know, in the river. Maybe we actually do want to put some capital control. Maybe we do want to make sure that banks have a split between retail and investment to make sure they don't... Because you're you're not putting all your faith in the market. So it very logically follows that you're going to have a much more expansive political agenda that emerges from his more restrictive economic It's a slippery slope? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: no. Are we on the verge of proving Hayek <laughs> right? If it ended with serfdom, then perhaps. So There's a lovely observation by Nicholas Wapshaw in Keynes Hayek. Says, Keynes offered a hopeful view of the future with everyone employed, based on an optimistic view of human nature, mm. Hayek was a doubter and pessimist. Those who strive to make the world better would likely end up inviting unintended consequences. Thus, optimists and idealists tended to follow Keynes. Pessimists found in Hayek a sober guide to the disappointments of the real world. Reminds me of Jordan Peterson. It does doesn't it? Yeah. So you know the, the essential, the, the gloominess sometimes at the heart of conservatism. Mm. You know. Like, shit, don't try and fix it. No, and the unfixability of man, in a way, that's in there. Now, I think, extrapolating from that, that this is true of eras as well, that during a period of great optimism, Keynes sort of rang true, not just as a a toolkit, but as a kind of way of thinking about the world. And as the world became more pessimistic, and it's just startling how pessimistic it became in around, like, 73, 74, Mm. then people turned to Hayek in 74, in fact when you've got, like, stagflation and it's the year after the, um, the oil shock right. from the Yom Kippur War, Hayek wins the Nobel Prize. And neoliberals claim that Keynesianism caused the crisis of the 70s, which is different from saying this is a crisis that the, the usual Keynes toolkit can't fix. It's mm-hmm. going, actually, this is why we've got it. So he becomes like a whipping boy.
0: And we, we should point out here that historically, laissez-faire and neoliberalism, on the one hand, were much more concerned with inflation and that Keynesianism was much more concerned with unemployment. So yeah. by the time you hit the 70s and there's an inflation problem, then it feels
1: like laissez-faire
0: yeah. is like, well, this is what we've been warning you about this whole time.
1: But it seemed like, even then that people were quite fond of Keynes the guy. <laughs> there's an amazing quote um, from Margaret Thatcher in 1979 he goes. I'm afraid Keynesianism has gone mad and it wasn't in the least little bit what Keynes thought. <laughs> and Milton Friedman also had lots of good things to say about Keynes. Mm. And so actually you didn't have to be a Keynesian to like Keynes. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a feeling on the, the right that his followers had sort of soiled his legacy They'd got carried away by hubris and too much optimism. So the backlash was against almost that lot, the young people, or the, you know, the people who were younger you know, in the 30s and 40s, as opposed to with Keynes himself. And the funny part is,
0: you know, that, the Second World War stuff that we've skipped over... That's a period where you have to worry about inflation because you're thinking about a war economy, Mm -hmm. basically. And what does Keynes do in that scenario? He worries about inflation. You know, it's not like, you know, he he would have been if he had been alive, which he usually could have been. I mean, Hayek was, you know, during that sort of 70s Mm. period. Could he have been alive? Maybe not. He would have probably been very old, but he might have just been, you know, Mm. still there. He would have been worrying about inflation in that scenario. And Keynesianism itself, there was no one that was like, well, this isn't a concern. It was just that the levers, there needed to be some changes in economic theory, but not really a revolutionisation. The funny part is that unlock that Keynes brings after the war to state intervention much more broadly has its exact mirror image in the 70s. when It's like, well, really, we just need this fairly modest bit of sort of economic change here. But in fact, it turns into this huge ideological revolution for free market economics across the board.
1: But which is weirdly misleading, to an extent that I hadn't fully appreciated. That we think of it as you've got the Keynes revolution, and then you've got the counter-revolution, which really starts in uh, 79 with Thatcher getting in, then followed by Reagan. Mm. The economist Alan S. Blinder said, by about 1980, it was hard to find an American academic macroeconomist under the age of 40 who professed to be a Keynesian. (laughs) So you would just go, oh, right, well, that's that then. You know, the the, the counter-revolution has won. But then a lot of the 1980s boom in America was Keynesian, but not pitched as such. So you look at, like, trickle-down economics from tax cuts, Mm -hmm. that's kind of... That can be seen as Keynesian, massive defence spending. Yeah, that can be seen as Keynesian, and and so Milton Friedman in two thousand said that Keynes had won. (laughs) We're thinking here like two (laughs) thousand, like peak of neoliberalism. You know, so Keynes won because the West was more socialist, more regulated, more interventionist. Mm And that really kind of changed my, changed my thinking about, like, to what extent Keynesianism had been defeated and replaced by neoliberalism. And in fact, mm. there were still parts of it being used, again, in a crisis where suddenly you know, Reagan was responding to the early 80s recession.
0: There's also a really slippery left-right Sort of projection that you can have onto it, right? So the tax cuts, for instance, right? If the tax cuts are at the top, it's trickle down. We think of that as right wing. But if someone, and admittedly this isn't hugely popular on the left, but it does come up, if someone says, "Well, we really need to cut taxes for people that are earning less than twenty-five grand," you know, then that's considered a much more left-wing approach towards it. But more pr- In a more pronounced way, if you say we want state intervention in the economy in order to build more social housing, very left wing. If you say we want state intervention in the economy in order to build a big military industrial complex, then very, very right wing. Yeah. Right? So actually, the projects that you undertake in your Keynesian mission will tend to define whether people think of it as Keynesian because they associate Keynes with the left. So if those projects mm. look more right wing, they assume that it's actually nothing to do with it.
1: Yeah, no, that's it's, it's fascinating how counterintuitive mm. some of that is now. 2008 financial crisis, which is one of those things that keeps popping up almost as much as the Dreyfus affair. Um, (laughs) There is a glut of Keynes biographies, essay collections, analysis. It's like he's back, 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 baby. Um, Now the editors of the essay collection, The Return to Keynes, argue that actually interventionist policies began creeping back after the 2001 uh, dot-com recession. And that this is what allowed governments to react so fast in the 2008 crisis. Which is interesting, because it wasn't like this sudden shock and everyone's like reaching for Keynes, but that, mm. that they were ready for that. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things they weren't ready for in 2008. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's no doubt that George W. Bush's stimulus package was Keynesian, yep. as was Obama's. Uh, there's a couple of great quotes here. The, the neoliberal economist Robert Lucas said, I guess everyone is a Keynesian in a foxhole. Mm. <laughs> And the FT said, in the long run, we are all dependent on Keynes. <laughs> I know it's about writing about him, but people like the quips. <laughs> they love
0: it. There's, I mean, a, a crucial figure in all this is uh, Christina Romo, who's the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for Obama. And she's the one, she is a Keynesian, and she just pushes forwards the stimulus package. I think she wants it at 1.3 trillion, but it, it comes down to 787 billion. And she puts the multiplier. I mean, again, it's a classic, she just sits there, she's like, look, multiplies above one. So spend the money, you know, because you're going to get it back. Yeah. And it does, in fact, there's 1.6 million jobs are created there. You see emergency measures, when you take them together, the US, Europe, Britain, after the financial crash, adds up to about 7 trillion. Um, you see Gordon Brown, if you remember that G20 uh, World Summit, where they set up a sort of 1 trillion international stimulus, it was dipped into Argentina, Indonesia, Brazil, South Korea, Turkey. So you really got that sense of humorous back. And then, at least in this country, it's just like, floop. It's like, no, no, it's austerity now.
1: 2010 comes and it was like none of that even happened. It's crazy. Okay, so in Capitalist Revolutionary, Roger Backhouse and Bradley Bateman say that the big difference was that in the 1960s, Keynesians believed in Keynes's moral philosophy of society and in sort of building a better world but in 2008, they just wanted a quick fix to basically <laughs> fucking stop, every, stop everything going under. So they said there would seem to be a Keynes for good times and a Keynes for bad times. And I wonder therefore that, that the Keynes that emerged in 2008, 2009 was one that was just like, well, this was the break glass in case of emergency. Mm. And at least in this country, Cameron and Osborne were like, cool, right, we don't need that anymore. You don't need to believe in Keynesianism to be Keynesian in a crisis. And then you can just put it to one side again. That's interesting. I wonder also
0: if it's just like the sort of arbitrary political tide. You know, like if it had been the Tories in power for, you know, over a decade before the financial crash comes in. And Labour would come in with a very different narrative oh. of like, no, you know what, we need to go back to sort of, you know, stimulating. The... But maybe everything would have just been completely different. It was just a symptom of just being tired of this government. And therefore, the other one comes in with the, with the other narrative. But certainly, at the time, it worked. And it was interesting because on that pessimism view. Mm. It was incredible to see how effective George Osborne saying fix the roof when the sun was shining actually was on people. You know, that view of things, and again, go right back past Keynes, past all the stuff he disproved to these household analogies of just like, no, your house and the country is basically the same fucking thing. You know, really rudimentary stuff, which he had basically refuted in that book, and yet it still clung on in people's sort of psychological assessments of the situation
1: they were in. Now, you are more optimistic now, I think, if you look at what Starmer's Labour is doing, what Joe Biden is doing in the US. Is this, presumably, of course, Labour wins the next election, you know, is this the sort of the new age of Keynes that didn't quite materialise as expected after 2008? So the thing is, going to go
0: back to our two versions of him, right? Because, strictly speaking, what we're seeing is not Keynesianism. There is no crisis of aggregate demand in the British or the American economy. That is not the scenario that we're in. It's not technically anything to do with that. But the political philosopher version of Mm. it, did you see that last stimulus package that Biden passed was $1.9 trillion, like a ridiculously large stimulus package. The kind of thing, you know, when 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 Christina Romer presented her version of going above one trillion to to Obama, he was just, he must be completely insane. I'm not, I can't go over one trillion. You know, yeah. it would just seem completely insane. Now, hardly anyone even blinked an eyelid when, when Biden did that. It wasn't considered this
1: extraordinary change in political fortune. Well, the latest British Social Attitude Survey finds that support for state intervention in the economy is the highest... Uh, I think since the in the survey's lifetime, right? Wow, that's crazy. You know, it it has been running since 1983. Mm -hmm. It is phenomenal how many areas of the economy people expect the state to intervene now, which is certainly not the way that Rishi Sunak, let alone Liz Truss, thinks about this. And so, so I wonder whether actually the British public has become very Keynesian.
0: Yeah. You know, even
1: if they've never heard of the
0: guy. Well, which again reflects the kind of, you know, the, the political tides, those sort of political sequences of ten to fifteen years. You know, you've had Tories with austerity for a certain amount of time, then you're like, well, hang on, let's try something else. Labour's program, you know, is is pretty Keynesian. It's it look, it's Keynesianism in an austerity straitjacket. That is what it is. You know, you've got the fiscal rules. The fiscal rules say we're going to reduce the debt over five years. Uh and we're only going to borrow in order to invest, not for day-to-day spending. Now, Keynes would just be like, why would you just do it over five years? Oh, because there's an election then. So what you're doing is you're allowing the politics to overrule the economics. It would be exactly the kind of thing that he would despise. And it's plain austerity speak, I mean, it's just nonsense. And it's more really akin to theology than it is any kind of economics. But then you look at what they want to do with net zero. Net zero is like setting up GB energy, creating a million new jobs, mm. you know, public works in the form of decarbonisation. And and to a very tight timescale and in a a really quite ambitious and expensive way. So really, to be honest, it's quite an extraordinary mixed picture. That mixed picture that we have from 2008 of a bit of gains and a bit of reversal really is sort of exhibited in Labour's programme. But I think if we sit here not far away from an election in Britain... And the kind of government that is likely to be returned if Labour wins will be far, far more Keynesian than any that we've lived under in our lifetimes. Certainly much more so than you would have seen during the new Labour era, for instance.
1: Well, I want to end here by returning to sort of Keynes, the man and the complexity of him, because Mm. in some ways he's the arch pragmatist. It's not about dogma. It's about what works. Right. And yet he has this utopian streak, which is often forgotten and comes out at certain times. I've noticed some biographers get very, very excited about this, the sort of the the poet-philosopher side. And one of his essays has really come into its own. Uh, It's called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren, first delivered as a speech in 1928, published in 1930. And it's it's a bit of a kind of mischievous piece, a bit of a provocation rather than a prophecy, but it's become absolutely essential to uh, discussions of post-work. If you read any book about the future of work, they will quote this essay. Mm. And this is Keynes being influenced. I said about this Freudian idea of the pathology of money. The only thing that he he liked about Bolshevism was its condemnation of the pursuit of wealth. And he imagines that within 100 years, growth and technology would enable everyone to live well, provided that they chose leisure over wealth. Hmm. Man's new problem, he writes, will be how to use his freedom from pressing economic cares, how to occupy the leisure which science and compound interest have won for him to live wisely and agreeably and well. Skidelsky sums this up as saying, uh, "It's an enlarged Bloomsbury at the top, and bread and circuses <laughs> for the masses." It really comes back to this idea of just like, wouldn't it be lovely to sort of live for you know live for, for art and beauty? Now, obviously, hundred years later, almost uh, shit ain't like that. Mm. One of the things he banked on was that the world population would remain stable, <laughs> which it did not. Um, but, you know, the ideas have come back. And I, I love the way that he, said, he concludes by going, economics would fade away and economists would be no more important than dentists. <laughs> so he's sort of dreaming of like almost the decline of his own, this profession that he almost mm. sort of invented. And there's just a lovely uh, testament to his optimism I predict that both of the two opposed eras of pessimism, which now make so much noise in the world, will be proved wrong in our own time. The pessimism of the revolutionaries who think that things are so bad that nothing can save us but violent change, and the pessimism of the reactionaries who consider the balance of our economic and social life so precarious that we must risk no experiments. And it is, in some senses, of course, it's very centrist in its phrasing, but it's founded on this commitment to, like, to optimism, to the ability to imagine a future that is much better than the present, mm. and that's extremely important side of him, which is quite different from, like you said, just like the tw- the tweaking of the tweaking of demand mm. and that very technocratic side, and it feels like. You said there may be two Keynesianisms. I th- you know, I think there are probably more. Hmm. I think you hmm. can you can extract from his life and work quite a lot of like different visions of the role of economics in in the world and in the, in the life of human beings.
0: The last time I saw you look this happy when we discussed something on Origin Story was when we did superhero comics. <laughs> That's the level of love just radiating from this room. I do feel like. There's this thing that um, Azar Berlin's chief editor said about him, which is that he, he demonstrated the range of possibilities at the higher realms of human potential. And that's not an exact quote, I've kind of mangled it, but you get the gist. And like I just think that's what you find with him. It's like one of the pleasures of reading him. is not just the accomplishments or the consequences of his accomplishments. It's just to. so often in this podcast we spend with people who... When you look into what you, you know, they're saying and just, like oh, God's sake, you're just a moron and you come from very bad motives. It's such a fucking pleasure to just read about the life of someone that like, has very good motives and is actually operating on an extremely high scale. It's just an, an absolute delight to see a life like that, especially when at the end of it, millions of people who existed would have had their lives immeasurably improved as a product of his work.
1: I'm end with this lovely quote from his treasury colleague, David Whaley, just after his death, uh, where he sort of uh, inadvertently paraphrases the Pet Shop Boys. <laughs> it was impossible for him to be boring because it was impossible for him to be bored. Everything interested him because everything in his mind fitted instantaneously into its place in the conflict between wisdom and folly. <laughs>
0: Hello Patreon people, I just want to take this chance to thank you all individually for your help, especially while we've been off during the break. So thank you in particular this week to Oscar Smith, John Doolan, Matthew Giles, Sanjay Noir and James Johan and... Extra specially, I need to say thank you to Ashley of Firetronic. They're a specialist company in Fire alarms. My fire alarm was going off for like two to three days and driving me absolutely insane. And Ashley came over to fix it. And only at the end of doing that, said, Oh, I really like um Origin Story podcast, by the way. <laughs> Just for that. Because I suspect he might have come over earlier than he would have done on the basis of liking this podcast. I want to thank him profoundly, in the marrow of my bones, because that that fucking thing was driving me completely mad mad cheers ashley okay let's wrap it up patrons thank you very much as ever for your support you already have the next episode uh in your inbox which is kind of a screeching change of gears zombies that'll be in your inbox right now if you as a non patron want to get it in your inbox as well you can sign up now by following the
1: link on the show notes yes we will be exploring the politics of the undead do they vote? We will find out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much uh, for listening. If you're a patron supporter, thank you especially for that. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Cheerio. Origin Story Season Four is written and presented by Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky. The lead producer is Anne Marie Luff, and the audio producer was me, Simon Williams. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Music is by Jade Bailey. And art direction is by James Parrott and Misha Welsh. Origin Story is a Podmasters production.